Let the church say amen. amen. And indeed, that is such a, a wonderful reminder. And thank you so much, Pastor Doug, for, for letting us know that no matter what we go through, we're never alone. God is always there with us each and every step of the way. And, and there's never a time, never a time, that the people of God who've been transformed by the love of God, through the grace of God, should ever think that we're alone. Amen. Amen. So good morning. morning. I'm so pleased to be with you this morning to continue to share from that wonderful letter, the book of Romans, that God has blessed with us. And thank you, Peter, so much for, for reading that so wonderfully for us this morning. Now, by now, as we begin to draw near the end of this wonderful gift of God, you guys know the storyline. Peter is, Paul, I'm sorry, is writing a letter of instruction and application to the church of God that is located in the city of Rome. Uh, it's a body of believers who have gone through some very challenging times. And certainly there were some challenges that had arisen from outside of the church, instigated by that arch enemy of God, Satan himself. Uh, other challenges had originated uh, from the world. And, and these two enemies, who are constantly at work to, get, to attack God's prized possession, the church of Jesus Christ. And, and make no mistake about it. Satan's desire is to destroy our Lord's church. But there's something we need to know this morning. Satan already is a defeated enemy. Uh, Jesus himself said that not even the gates of hell will stand against his church. And that's good news. So Paul, he, he writes this letter to encourage the believers by instructing them on the foundation of our faith. It takes him 11 chapters to do so, and, and in those 11 chapters, he labors to lay out a foundation of biblical truth that the church is able to stand on. And as we've seen, indeed, it is a mountain of theological principles that will forever stand in light of the many attacks against the church of God. But there's another attack that Peter wants us to be aware of as well. And I keep saying, Peter, I, I keep looking at Peter over here, and <laughs> I think you would have said it as well, bro. But Paul wants to remind us that there's another attack uh, out there as, as well. Uh, in this case, the, the attack is not so much from outside the church, led by Satan in the world, but it's an attack from inside the church. Now, that's not to discount the activity of Satan uh, as well in regards to the attack that comes from inside the church. Uh, Satan understands. He's crafty enough to understand that uh, an attack from inside, although it's equally doomed, can be very destructive and have an effect a strong impact on the church. So Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
is addressing the attack that's often fueled by strife within the church. And so Paul, in those first 11 chapters of Romans, uh, lays this theological bridge. And it's on this bridge, beginning in, in Romans chapter 12 and continuing on through the closing chapter, chapter 16. In these four chapters, Paul instructs the church on how to put into practice what has been laid out theologically. You know, I think Romans 13, our, our text, text for the morning, is just an exquisite presentation of how God expects his people to believe, to behave in difficult times. So last week, we looked at the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13, and if by chance you missed those, you need to go and, and look them up on YouTube and Hootube and whatever tube you use <laughs> and, and make sure that you take a look and a good listen at the messages preached by Sam and Jake on those verses. It's well worth your time and your investment. But now we come to these final seven verses of this chapter. Now, in this message, I'm going to do a little something I hardly ever do. Uh, we start at verse 8, but I'm not going to start there. I'm going to start at verse number 11. And the reason why I want to start at verse 11, it's, it's strategically placed by Paul right between the three verses that precede and the three verses that follow. I think of it as kind of a hinge that the other three verses, six verses, pivot around. And I hope that doesn't sound a little bit confusing, but just hang in there with me. It's not as if my convoluted way of looking at things means that the world is coming to an end, right? But that's an interesting thought, because that's another reason why I'm starting with verse 11. Because Paul is shouting at the top of his lungs that the world, as we know it, is indeed coming to an end. And that's why the theme for this message this morning is, wake up. This is not the time to sleep. Jesus is coming back. Wake up, beloved of the Lord. There's no time for sleeping. Jesus is coming back. And so I want to look at three points. The first one is, this is not the time to be confused about your salvation. Uh, then we'll move on and we'll talk about, this is not the time to keep walking in the flesh. And then we'll close with, this is not the time to fall away from love. Because Jesus is coming back. And we'll, we'll close with a point of application. It's, it's time to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. So let's start off with that first point. This is not the time to be confused about your salvation. Verse 11, as I said earlier. Here's what uh, Paul says. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The apostle puts in a very interesting spin on the topic of salvation that I think commands our attention. Paul begins this verse with a statement about time. 
In verse 11, he says, then do this understanding the present time. Now, what is this present time that Paul is talking about? Well, it's interesting to, to look at how the ancient Greeks talked about the topic of time. Uh, they had really two primary words to use when they wanted to address time. Uh, one of those words is chronos. Now, chronos refer, refers to chronological or sequential time. It's the time that we kind of keep on our watch. Okay, and, and usually when we think of the concept of time, we tend to have a chronos mindset. We think of 24 hours a day. We, we define our work weeks by the number of hours that we work. We have a list of things to do and only so much time to get everything done. Chronos uh, time is used over 52 times within the New Testament text. And you'll see a listing of those there on the screen. There's Matthew 2.7, John 7.33, and Galatians 4.4 as examples. Now, let me just read Matthew 2.7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time, the chronos time, that the star would appear. Now, on the other hand, when the Greeks wanted to talk about a time period, they used the word kairos. Now, kairos is used 87 times in the New Testament, and it speaks of a qualitative era or a fixed period of time. Uh, Matthew 8.29 and John 5.4 are examples of where kairos time is, is used. In Matthew 8, 20, 29, here's what the scripture says. Uh, this is speaking of the demons as they're responding back to Christ. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And they were very well aware that a time was coming when their end would come about. And this Kairos time is exactly the time that, that Paul speaks of in Romans 13, 11. And do this understanding the present Kairos time. So here's the point. Paul is saying to the believers that the time for the second coming of Christ is now at hand. They are living in the last hour before the Lord would return. It was a time defined in a Kairos manner, designating a specific era. And what was true for the church then is even more so true for the church today because the era of the last hour is almost over. Well, what hour is that? And I think that's why verse 11 is so central to what Paul is saying in these closing verses of chapter 13. And do this, understanding the present hour, the, hour, the hour, present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So look, let me be clear about this up front. I'm not going to talk the rest of our message about chronos time. 
no one knows exactly the time that Christ is coming back. That's why he, Jesus declared in Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So if there's anyone out there that's going to tell you exactly what time Christ is coming back, you just tell them, shut up. <laughs> because they don't know what they're talking about. But here is what Paul is declaring. Paul is declaring that indeed we are now living in the last days, in the Kairos time. And at any moment, when all has been accomplished, Christ will return. So we looked at that first little portion of verse 11. Let me jump to the last phrase in verse 11. And here's what Paul says, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, what does he mean by salvation is nearer now? It sounds maybe a little confusing, right? Confusing, right? But, but if there's anything we should never be confused about, it should be the topic of our salvation. Amen? Amen? And Paul did not intend for his words to be confusing. But we need to talk, to talk about what does it mean that salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And here's what I want to share with you. In the Bible, salvation is a singular event that has three tenses to it. It's a singular event that has three tenses to it. There's salvation in the past tense. There's salvation in the present tense. Then there's salvation in the future tense. Now, Paul was not confused about the process of salvation. Paul is not teaching, nor am I speaking to even the thought that salvation, you get saved multiple times. That's clear in the Bible that salvation is a once-in-a-lifetime event that is never repeated for a believer. You are saved once. And from that Moment of salvation, praise be to God, it's a done deal. Once for all. That's why I love to read Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. And let, let me read those because those are foundational verses to, to understand that salvation is done once for the believer. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Once. So when Paul is speaking to the fact that our salvation is nearer, he's not talking from the perspective of the believer, but he's talking from God's perspective. And here's what's going on. The, the activity associated with the work of salvation speak to, speaks to what God has done, what God is doing right now, 
and what God will do in the future. You know, it's always interesting for me to think about time because time is such a big part of who we are, right? But from God's perspective, there's really not any past time or present time or future time. There just is. It just all comes together as one. Now, it's hard for me to really break that down, but if you have questions, call Pastor Sam. He's an expert at dealing with that. <laughs> but it, 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 it's not my nature to argue about controversial things, right, Terry? <laughs> Say, I need an amen. There we go. But let's look at how this salvation thing works. So let's talk first of all about salvation past tense. Say salvation in the past. Here's what the Bible declares in 2 Timothy 1.9. Talking about God. Who saved us, past tense, and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Salvation past. In the mind of God, salvation was a reality before the age of men actually began. Salvation was not an afterthought. The triune God did not have to react to the sin of man by coming up with a plan in the moment to fix what was broken. Sin did not catch God by surprise. In his eternal, divine, perfect mind, salvation was already a done deal. Praise the Lord. Salvation past. Let's talk about salvation present time. So the, the, the scripture also talks about the fact that we are being saved. Rich McKinney did a wonderful job explaining that this morning in our equipping class. As we journey through this life, God keeps us saved through his divine power, not on our ability to hang on. The Bible declares in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Listen to this next phrase. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God is at work right now, in this very moment, to keep each and every one of his beloved in the state of salvation that he has promised to us. Salvation wasn't up to you in eternity past, and the process of staying saved in the presence is maintained by the power of the Almighty God. The ongoing process of salvation is a present reality based on what God has already done. That's such a wonderful blessing from God. God is at work both to walk with us and through us by the presence of the Holy Spirit so that we are empowered to work, work out our soul's salvation, as Paul speaks to in Philippians 2.16. So, if there's anything I want to say today that I would want you to walk out with, 
Here it is. So all eyes on me, all ears open, and hear what I want to say. It is God who is actively working with us in the present to both seal our salvation and help us persevere through the ups and downs of our lives. Amen. That's what God is up to. So if you're sitting there this morning thinking that you're saved because of, and just fill in the blank, anything that you're thinking of, that is a source of pride, and you need to end that confusion right now. The surety, the surety of our salvation in this present moment is due to the work of God. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 that God is our guarantee. If you're looking to, for assurance in any other way, if you think you can just figure it out and that would give you the comfort you need to rest assured that you are saved in this moment, then that's just foolishness, beloved. That's what faith is all about. It's the evidence of things hoped for, okay? We need to rest in the assurance of what God has told us. He is saving us now as he saved us in the past. But praise be to God. He's also going to save us in the future. So here's what God is doing in salvation future. It's what Paul referred to at the closing of verse 11. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Our blessed hope in Christ looks forward to the day when all that God has promised will become reality. That's the point that Paul's making in this little phrase. He, he's reminding the Roman believers about the reality that awaits them. It is a reality that is closer to them than it was when they first believed. Here's the reality. That soon and very soon, we all will become the perfect image bearers of God and will exist in that state for all of eternity. Again, praise God. What a wonderful day that will be. Uh, again, with respect to salvation from God's perspective, salvation has that past tense, uh, the present tense, and the future tense. Let me see if I can pull it all together in a slightly different way. And I've kind of looked, uh, relied upon some ancient theologians, ancient from my perspective, uh, to help me with this. And one in particular is A.W. Pink. And here's what Brother Pink wrote. Salvation delivers the Christian from the penalty of sin. That's salvation in the past tense. Uh, salvation delivers the Christian from the power of sin. That's salvation in the, future in the present tense. And then praise be to God, salvation delivers the Christian from the presence of sin. Now that's salvation in the future tense. So, delivered from the penalty of sin. That's what the work of justification is. Uh, that's a, a good way to sum up what has happened in being justified. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin. And what was that penalty of sin? Death. For the soul that sins dies. 
But praise be to God, we have been delivered through salvation from the penalty of sin. We have been justified. Delivered from the power of sin could be thought of as sanctification. Uh, We are no longer enslaved to sin. And beloved, we need to stop acting that way. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are indeed free. We are the freest of all people because of the process of sanctification. And the Bible says very clearly, we have been crucified with Christ and so that this body of death may be brought to nothing so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Romans 6.6. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Can you say that with me? We are no longer enslaved to sin because we have been delivered from the power of sin. Oh, beloved. But one of these days, we will also be delivered from the presence of sin. That's glorification. Sin will be destroyed forever. Uh, For me, like the Apostle Paul, glorification is worth all that we have to go through here on earth. It reminds me of that old hymn, when we all get to heaven, what a wonderful day that will be. Sounds like i got some witnesses out there. (laughs) No, we will all be there. Uh, The Godhead will be there. All of the heavenly hosts will be there. All of the manifolds goodness, the manifest goodness of God will be there. But guess what what won't be there? Sin. You you know, you know, sometimes, sometimes I I love to ask believers, what are you looking forward to in heaven? You know, what's got you pumped about when we all get there? And I guess maybe the best answer is everything. It's going to be good. It's going to be real good. But you know, when I, really, when I really sit back and I think about it, there's one thing that really causes me to rejoice about making it up to heaven. And it's this. I won't ever sin again. Just think about it. It's because of sin that Jesus had to die. And for every sin that I've committed in the past. For every sin I'm committing in the present. For every sin that I will commit in the future. Jesus had to suffer on that wretched cross. For every sin, another blow to his hand. For every sin, another thrust of that spear in his side. For every sin, another degree of agony that he had to suffer. All because of the sins I committed in my past, in my present, and in my future. All of them. And with the deepest level of understanding that I have, and no matter how much I hate sin, I realize that it won't stop until I've made it home to glory and gained my glorified state. I just can't wait until I'm finally delivered from the presence of sin in its totality. 
And for that to happen, God had to put forth a plan of salvation that covered the past, the present, and the future. Praise be to our almighty God. And that's why Paul declares about our salvation in verse 11. And do this. Understand the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up. Stop being confused about your salvation. Wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So it's time for us to wake up. Our salvation is now nearer than when we first believed. So that brings me to point two. Because we know that salvation is so precious, and because we understand what it cost our Lord, and because we hate sin, it's time for us to, to not, to no longer, the time is up to keep on walking in the flesh. We've been asleep at the wheel. And that is simply no longer acceptable. Uh, Paul closes out, and I'm going to jump to verse number 12. I told you this was going to be confusing. Start at verse 11, and now I'm at verse 12. But I'm coming back to verse 8, okay? Hold on. The night is nearly over, he says in verse 12. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Amen. This is a strong exhortation from Paul that's given as a command. This is a command, guys. We don't have options about this. We can't vote whether or not we want to do this or not and may the majority win, okay? Uh, we got a vote here of zero. Here's what Paul is saying. Put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, I don't have enough time yet this morning to talk about the put-on, put-off strategy that is laid out in Scripture. Uh, but it's really a wonderful thing for us to go back and take a look at in depth. But Paul has given three sets of, uh, of vices, three sets of vices that all believers must avoid. And Paul contrasts what it means to walk in darkness versus walking in Christ. But here's what was the heartbreaking reality for, for Paul. He was, he was concerned, maybe even a bit confused, about looking at the conflict that was going on in the church. And it was a conflict characterized by the fact that so many believers were walking in the flesh. Paul was devastated because he knew that he was talking to fellow believers. But, but here's the sad reality. Even believers can walk in darkness in opposition to the mandate from God to clothe themselves in the likeness of Christ and to walk in the light. Paul saw just the opposite, just the opposite taking place in the Roman church. And sadly, if he were with us today, he would see the same thing occurring in our churches today. 
Isn't that sad? Uh, frankly, there's just too much infighting going on among God's people today. There's too much dissension, too much jealousy, to use Paul's words. Uh, to walk in darkness is just plain old ugly, displeasing to God, and it is destroying our witness before the world. Look, folks, we need to stop walking in the flesh. Sin has no more power over us, right? Because we're no longer enslaved to it. So among those who call themselves Christ followers, we must stop the drunkenness, the sexual immorality, the debauchery, and the jealousy. It must simply stop. Well, how do we stop it? But that brings me to point three. This is not the time to fall away from love. So let's go back up and pick up those verses I've been skipping around. Verse number eight. Here's what Paul says. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others have has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, and you see those. And what Paul closes with is love your neighbor as yourself. Here's verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Amen. There is no time to fall away from love. It's obvious that the focus of these three verses from Paul is, say it like you mean it. Thank you. Now, there's a lot to that Paul's got packed in these verses. And, and I can't unpack it all because some of you are ready to get out of here. I can see that. So I'm going to just focus on love. But, but you know, as I was walking through these verses and just going over them and going over it, Lord, what, what do you need me to say? There was something in the back of my, my mind that just kept bugging me. And, and it's obvious that Paul is reflecting back on the teachings of Jesus. Uh, you all are familiar with uh, the confrontation that Jesus had with the lawyer uh, that's recorded for us in Matthew 22. Verses 36 through 40, and, and this guy had the audacity to come up to Christ and said, what's the greatest commandment? Well, he didn't know what he was opening up. He says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, but that's what was bugging me. Why didn't Paul include the great and first commandment in his teaching to the Roman church? Just been bugging me in the back of my mind. Why did he pick up with the second one? Well, maybe, maybe it was because Paul knew he was addressing true believers and the definition, the definition of a true believer is that they love God first and foremost. Amen. All right? So maybe Paul was thinking, 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, there was no need to, to include that great and first commandment, right? I mean, I don't have to tell you people that say you're Christian, that love is the greatest obligation, right? I don't need to remind you guys about that, right? That goes without saying, right? Amen. So the great apostle didn't take it. He didn't take the opportunity to tell them what they already knew. Uh, Paul recognized the attempt to disciple ungodly, unbelievers, as a foolhardy attempt. But that was not the case with the people who went to church. He was, he was addressing a bunch of people who wanted everyone to know they were not like those pagan unbelievers who spat in the face of God and who didn't care one bit about living, loving lives. They were just good, conservative church folk. So with that assumption in hand, Paul goes straight to the issue that he needed to address. So instead of focusing on the obvious, Paul sees the need to restate the second part of how Christ addressed the lawyer's question. You know, I wish it was that simple. Maybe some of you out there have studied it better and you can instruct me on what really was going on. But, you know, I think Paul was just a bit confused. Uh, not about the issue of salvation. We've already talked about that. No, I think Paul was confused about how could believers who claimed they loved God as commanded by Jesus were for some reason acting as if they did not love their neighbors. Paul was confused. He was confused about the fact that they acted as if they were confused about what it meant to love. How were they confused? They were confused about claiming they loved God, but acting like they didn't love their neighbor. And for Paul, that simply was not acceptable. It didn't matter. It didn't matter that they had kept all the other commandments. You shall not commit murder. You should not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Uh, and whatever other commandment there may be. If you are not loving your neighbor, you're missing the mark. Amen. And just as Jesus taught that love is summed up in one commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, Paul reiterates the commandment exactly. And let me remind you, biblically, when the Bible talks about your neighbor, it's in essence talking about a complete stranger or the person living next door to you or even your enemy. God commands that we remain and love them the same, including your enemies. Why? Because that's exactly what God did for you. Did you not know? Do you, have you forgotten are you confused that before the Lord saved you, you were God's enemy? That's why Paul wrote in Romans 5. Let's go back to Romans 5. I hope we haven't forgotten that. Romans 5, verse 10. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When we were dead in our trespasses and sin, we were, we were redeemed, unredeemed enemies of God. But now we have been saved, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about our neighbors that are in the church, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. If there, if, if there needs to be a love party going on, guess who it ought to be? We ought to be loving. Turn around, look at your neighbor, and just say, I love you, neighbor. But that wasn't what was going on in the Roman church. They were boasting about their righteousness, but fighting among themselves. Sure, certainly it sounds like our churches today. If we are called to love our enemies, how much more should we call, we are called to extend love to one another. Beloved, this is not the time to fall away from love. Amen? So let me close with this point of application. Time to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. All right, so, again, what time is it? Beloved, it's time to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. In 10 years, take a couple years here or there, but in 10 years, the Christian church will celebrate the 2,000th anniversary of the crucifixion of our Lord. Okay? Now, that's not a prediction of the return of Christ. I've already told you I'm not going to do that. He may not come back for another thousand uh, years. I don't know. But Paul is saying loud and clear, our salvation is nearer now than it has been before. The time of our glorification is at hand, where the presence of sin will be ever taken care of. We need to be ready. Uh, as we've gone through the book of Romans, we've shared that Romans was written around A.D. 57. Paul was about 53 years old, and he wrote the letter of Romans. In seven years, when he reached the age of 60, that's when he would be, well, when he would be martyred in Rome. So in seven short years, what Paul is talking about in theory now will become a, a reality for him. And for Paul to live to 60, that was pretty unusual. Most people died when they were in their 40s back then. So the Lord gave Paul a nice long life, almost 30 years of ministry. He served our Lord faithfully for all of those years. What a career. But the apostle Paul realized every day was another opportunity for Christ to come back now. And he was ready. But here's the question. Are you? Are you? Are you ready for the return of our Lord? You might not have another 30 years to serve the Lord. You might not have 10. The fact of the matter is, you might not have one more day. But whatever it is, Jesus warned us to be ready. To be ready. That's why he wrote in Luke 
12, 35 through 40, and I won't read it. Hopefully, it'll show up on the, on the screen here that we need to stay dressed for action and to keep our lamps burning. In verse 40, it says, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. We need to keep our lamps trimmed and burning right now because Christ can come back at any moment. So how do we do that? Well, here's three suggestions for you. Here's the first one. Starting today, starting today, don't put this off till tomorrow. Starting today, love a neighbor. Pray that God will send someone into your life as an opportunity to demonstrate Christ-like love. Number two, start today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Start today. Select a missionary and pray for them daily. Amen? Pray that the Lord will bless their ministry to take the gospel to all of the world right where they are. Select one. Pray today. Start today. Don't, don't wait till tomorrow. Start today. Christ may come back tomorrow. Start today. Starting today. Here's the last one. Become, if you're not already, a covenant member of a local church and become deeply involved. Amen. Become a member Get involved. Join whatever they're doing to worship our Lord and to build you up as a disciple of Christ. Join whatever ministries are in place to reach the lost, help the needy, love those who are hurting. Join a community group. Start attending an equipping class and attend those family gatherings. Don't wait till tomorrow. Start today. Don't just come to church. Be the church. Don't just come to church. Be the church. Do all these things so that if Christ comes today, he will find you awake, waiting on his return, and at work, building his kingdom. So I'm going to ask Jeff and our praise band to come back up as I close and wrap up. Let me remind you of this. Once again, once again, wake up. This is not time to sleep. Jesus is coming back. This is not time to be confused about your salvation. This is not time to keep walking in the flesh. And this is not time to fall away from love. This is the time to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Salvation now is nearer than when we first believed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much again, Lord. As we were reminded earlier when, when Doug shared uh, about the fact that we're never alone. Uh, and Lord, we're not alone as we prepare for the time of your return. Soon and very soon. Soon and very soon. Lord, we pray that you don't find that we're asleep. We pray, Lord, that we are indeed awoken to the challenge, to the commandments that you've laid out so clearly before us. The time of our salvation is near. Help us, Lord, 
to work, to walk as people who are worthy of the calling that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen.